God, we're so incredibly blessed. We're blessed because we gather here with fellow believers in your presence. We're blessed because you have taken possession of all of us who are willing to surrender. You've give us, given us the blessing of your Holy Spirit that lives in us. God, today, we're blessed to be able to sit and hear your word proclaimed from the life of one of your servants. God, Geraldine and I and our family are blessed because of Wes allowing you to come into his life and he's allowed you to use him as an instrument. And I pray this morning that he would just surrender totally to your leadership as he speaks to us. Father, bless him, bless Ariel, bless their children, bless those that they're separated from today in St. Louis as they share themselves with them. Father, bless this church that will grow in grace and in knowledge of you and all that you want to communicate through this body. Father, we love you, and we honor you, and we give you praise for this day in the name of Jesus. Bless those that aren't here because of difficulties in their life, but bless those of us that gather here, that are here, that we will hear what you have to say to us today with open hearts and minds and lives that will be changed. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I guess we'll dismiss the kids at this time. Yeah, that's right. Just take the kids out. Wes is all here. All right. Check one. morning. Um, I think uh, most people here probably know me, uh, but for those who don't, I'm Wes Waddell. I'm Jim and Geraldine's youngest. Uh, I live up in St. Louis. Uh, my wife Ariel is here. We've got four little children. Uh, we've been in the St. Louis area for about four years. We're with the Crossings Church out of Wentzville, uh, and we've got a pretty neat dynamic church up there. It's a church plant, and we're actually planting other churches. Um, and so it's been a real blessing for us to be there and uh, be trained uh, the last four years to eventually go on a church plan ourselves. Uh, so that's kind of what we're into. Uh, but I was asked to come today and speak on a pretty tough topic, uh, the topic, topic of childhood sexual abuse. Um, and so that's why it would be good you know, for the, for the kids not to be here and some of the stuff we're going to talk about in here uh, this morning, just, you know, it, it's kind of an adult topic. Um, and I noticed when I was walking in, I couldn't help but see this big sign up here that said, uh, I'm entering a safe place. Uh, how many of you guys, when you came here for the first time, you saw that and it was comforting to you? You're just like, wow, okay. And so you, you can come in here, you can be transparent. Um, that's good, right? You know, and, and that's kind of the way God is presented to us in, in the form of Jesus. He's, he's, he's not as scary as maybe the Old Testament depiction of God. 
Uh, we can approach him. We can have this personal relationship with him. But at the same time, the Bible says about Jesus that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. About God, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So while we have this picture of Jesus and this approachable person, uh, it, I think it's important for us to clarify God is safe for us so long as we approach him the right way. Can you amen that? Amen. Because if we come to him and we're humble, and we're willing to surrender, and we're willing to bow before His throne, that's safe. We're in a safe place. He's going to welcome us. He's going to embrace us. He's going to create us to be the people. He's going to help us become the people we were created to be right now. But you know what? If you approach Him shaking your fist, and you're stiff-necked, and you're rebellious, and you're going to continue being your own God, and you go to God that way, is that safe? It's not safe. So let's make it clear here. We're entering a safe place so long as we enter this with the humility and the attitude that God is God, I'm not. And it's really, really easy to not do that, isn't it? Yeah. Especially when we're talking about a topic like sexuality in the day and age that we're living in today. Who's been watching the news? The big debate in the news right now is... Uh, well, what if I feel like a, a woman? Can I, can I go into the women's bathroom if I'm a man? Here's the debate right now with Target. Guys, is this not kind of silly? Now look, I'm, I'm not insensitive here at all. I lived in San Francisco before I moved to Missouri. My first Bible study was with a transgendered person. I don't have hatred in my heart for people that have that struggle. This guy, his name was Frank. He was a 65-year-old man who was taller than me, he was about six foot four, but he had 36 C breasts. And he wanted to know how to follow Jesus. And God intersected our lives together, and I was the guy along with a friend of mine who sat down and opened up the scriptures with this guy. Do you want to know why he did what he did? <clears throat> because he grew up in a home where he was being sexually abused by his father. He was being sexually abused by his uncle. They were also Catholics. He was being sexually abused by this Catholic priest. He was an altar boy at their church. At the age of 12, he ran away from home. He became a homosexual male prostitute in Las Vegas, where he smoked crack and sold his body so that he could feed his drug habit because of all the pain that he was trying to self-medicate. Around the age of 18 or 19, he ended up getting off the streets. He ended up going to college somehow. He got a degree in accounting. He tried to be straight. He got married to a woman in his 20s. He had three kids by her. The whole time, what she didn't know is that he was still sneaking out and having homosexual relationships, affairs with other men. She eventually found out about it. She divorced him. And he, being raised Catholic, who believed in God, thought, the only way God can love me is if I stop being gay, if I stop doing these things that I'm doing, but I can't do that, I can't control myself. And so guess why he had a sex change, guys? <clears throat> so that God would love him. Because he thought, if I can just change my gender and be a woman, I can be with a man, and then God will love me, because I won't be gay anymore. And here I am, studying with this guy, He's had six surgeries up to this point. He's about to have the last one to remove his penis and replace it surgically with a vagina. And here I am. This is my first Bible study in San Francisco. I'm supposed to teach this guy how to follow Jesus. And you know what they don't teach you how to do at Harding? 
handle situations like that. A woman is so screwed up sexually because that guy is considered, that, that's normal in San Francisco, that kind of stuff. And it's not limited to San Francisco. That's why this debate is raging all around the nation now. Some people are looking at it like, that's crazy. That's so wild. And some of the same people raging against that stuff are people who are addicted to pornography. And while Frank may be out in your face with what's going on with him, we've got our private lives that are just as screwed up as his are. Some people say, I can't believe somebody would do something like that, but then they're living with their boyfriend or girlfriend before they're married, sleeping with them. God looks at it and says, that's the same thing. Sexual immorality. This past week, I was talking to my sister, Alicia. A lot of you guys, who knows Alicia? They go to Cornerstone Bible Fellowship down in North Little Rock. Guess what their pastor got popped for this past week? 70 ounces of child pornography. It's going on in the news right now. And I could just go down and tell you story after story after story. There's all this garbage. And I don't care if it's public or private. I was reading this morning, just kind of preparing my mind, right? God is love. But part of his being loving is being holy. And I was reading this morning in Exodus, Exodus chapter 4, about Israel when they come up to Mount Sinai. And God tells Moses, I'm going to come down. My presence is going to come down on top of Mount Sinai. And I'm going to speak to you. Because I want the people to respect you, I'm going to let them kind of see my glory. And so he says, I'm going to come down this dense cloud and this fire. And you tell those people, you don't approach this mountain. And you put a fence around it because if they come up and they touch this mountain, they're going to die. And so Moses is allowed to go up. And only Aaron, his brother, has to go through this ceremony to go up to him. And there's just this holy aspect of God. It says when the presence of God descended on that mountain, guess what the people did who saw it? They trembled. The presence of God is coming down on this thing. That's their first response is they tremble. You go read Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is taken up to the throne room of, the throne room of God. Who's read that before? Where Isaiah is taken up and he's shown the throne room of God. It says the, the, the robe of God just fills up the whole room there is, this huge place. And there's these seraphim, which are flying snakes. If you didn't know, it's a type of angel. It's the highest angel, a winged serpent, is flying around the throne room of God singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah's first reaction is, I'm unclean, I'm a man of unclean lips. That's just the first thing he's thinking is like, I have no business being here. You'll read Revelation, the throne room scene. Same reaction from John. He's called up to heaven. What am I doing here? And the cool thing about Jesus is he makes us clean so that we can go into the presence of God and not be afraid. But so long as we hold on to this rebellion, we're not going to be clean. I got one scripture that I want us to look at together. Look at Revelation 21. Actually, uh, 22. 
Revelation 22. And this is Jesus talking. Verse 12. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and they go through the gates into the city. Now listen to this. Outside, outside of the city, where I'm going to be, outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Guys, the great news about Jesus is he is approachable. He is safe. But only if we're bowing our knee to him. Because he says his final words in the Bible are outside outside, away from me, are going to be these people who practice falsehood and a cult that practices magic arts. But he also mentions by name the sexually immoral. Hey guys, our world is so screwed up right now. What is normal in our world regarding sexuality and morality is the kind of stuff Jesus is going to look down on and say, this, this cannot have any part with me. And so I want to approach this topic with that mindset this morning, that we live in such a screwed up world, and that we had better approach this topic with humility, and we had better approach God with humility. And just because the people on the extremes of some of these issues, people like Frank, are the ones who get all the attention, especially in our day and age of media and 24-hour news cycles. Guys, any of this stuff that God calls in the scriptures immoral, sexually immoral, is stuff we need to be serious about. Because that's how serious Jesus takes it. And so, that's the intro. Um, and I've got three goals with you guys this morning regarding this talk about childhood sexual abuse. I want to just real quick dispel some myths about sexual abuse. I want to tell you my story uh, and some vague generalities uh, and just talk a little bit about how um, I am a victim, by the way, if you didn't know, I'm a victim of childhood sexual abuse. Uh, and so I'm going to tell you about that and tell you how that still affects me to this day. Um, and then I'm going to encourage you guys uh, to put something in place here um, to help people that have been abused like that. And so we'll, we'll talk about this as we go. Um, but real quickly, myths. Number one, how many of you guys have heard that everyone who has been abused becomes an abuser? Or the vast majority of people who have been sexually abused become abusers themselves? Okay, that's a myth. That's actually not true. It is a very small percentage of people who have been sexually abused who become sexual abusers themselves. themselves. Um, now, just about every single person who becomes an abuser was abused. Just about all of them, almost 100%. But a very small percentage of those who have been abused actually become abusers, okay? 
So just know that. Uh, number two, a lot of people think this kind of thing doesn't happen in church. That is a myth. The truth is, it happens all the time. And people also say, well, we shouldn't talk about this kind of thing in church. Again, that is a myth. I've got friends who have dealt with this issue for years. They've talked to ministers who say, we have a church in uh, St. Louis, the Crossings. We have a pretty open environment. Our minister there, Robert Cox, was abused. Just about every time he preaches, he will bring that up at some point in the sermon, and he does that intentionally because he wants to create an environment where people can talk about <laughs> stuff like this because we don't talk about it in the church. Part of the reason we don't talk about it is because people think it doesn't happen. But the truth is, and what ministers need to know, is if you're speaking to a group of people, you're already talking to several who have been sexually abused who have never told anybody about it. And so I know in this room, there are a bunch of you who have been sexually abused as children, and you have never told anybody about it. And you have minimized it, and you have said it wasn't really that big of a deal. I was a drug addict for years. A lot of us, and I know John 317 is here, a lot of people who become addicts later in life were sexually abused as children and never connect the dots to their abuse. I'm convinced if I hadn't been sexually abused when I was a little kid, I wouldn't have become a drug addict. But that's what happened to me. Um, and so, anyway, those are the major myths, though, that, um, you know, it, it doesn't happen. Everyone who's been abused becomes an abuser, and we shouldn't talk about it. Um, so we'll talk probably some more about that as we go. Uh, but let me tell you my story. Um, I was actually born in Searcy. Um, we lived there till 1983. At the age of three years old, uh, my family moved down to Little Rock. My dad had gotten a job down there preaching. And um, we moved there, and there were several kids in our neighborhood. Excuse me just a moment here. Several kids in the neighborhood um, that I used to run around with. Um, and what my parents didn't know is that there was also a pedophile living in our neighborhood uh, that lived up the street. And he abused his kids, and his kids were older than most of the others in our neighborhood. And his kids turned around and re-victimized, they abused other kids. And some of those other kids who were older and bigger and stronger than me are the ones who abused me. Uh, the first time I remember uh, having sexual contact with someone, I was about three or four years old. Uh, and I'm not going to get into the details, um, but it was very severe abuse that, I, that occurred at that time. Um, that continued off and on uh, for a period of several years. Um, and it was, you know, my, my parents did not know. They knew something had happened. They didn't know exactly what had happened. Um, and then the, there was more than one boy who abused me. Um, there was one in particular that was probably the worst. Um, and it was, it was just bad stuff. Uh, now, what that does to you whenever you're that young. Um, for me, I remember as a four-year-old thinking that something was inherently wrong with me. And I remember my behavior changing at church. I went from being this good boy, this good kid, 
to the kid that was kind of mean and mean-spirited. And I started like hitting other kids and, and just being really mean to the other children. And that's because I had this anger inside. I didn't know how to express it, but I, I'd been violated. And I had this anger that I just carried around with me as a small child. And um, it, it, was, it was, I just thought I was bad. And so since I was bad, I was going to act bad. Because that's what I was. It wasn't that something bad had been done to me. It was that I was bad. And another thing with sexual abuse is your body is going to do what it was designed to do. And so when you're touched in a certain way, and God has designed us to be sexual beings, he has designed us to enjoy sex, he has designed us to, to be, when our bodies are stimulated a certain way, it's going to cause pleasure. Just about every single person you talk to who has been abused, and especially if it was done several over a period of years, there's pleasure that's associated with it. Your body does what it was designed to do. And so it's like your body is betraying you. Because you're enjoying, in some way, you're hating it, but you're also feeling pleasure, so you're enjoying it at the same time. And you just feel like, if I'm enjoying this, then I'm definitely bad. I'm dirty, I'm ugly, I'm disgusting. And you internalize these messages about yourself, where that's what Usually I try to disconnect emotionally <laughs> when I'm talking about this stuff, but it's not always easy. Um, You're okay, bud. Okay. Uh, you just feel that way about yourself, like, like you're a piece of trash. And then you act the part when you feel that way about yourself. You act the part. And so here I was, three or four years old, and this abuse occurred, and then went on until I was six or seven. And it, it just it it took away my innocence. It, it took away my childhood in a lot of ways. And uh, <coughs> it, it was just, it was bad. <sighs> David, I'm glad I didn't blow snot on you. No problem. <laughs> okay, maybe that'll be the only episode. I'm sorry, I was looking at you girls over here that are tearing up because I know what's going to your mind. Um, yeah. We'll be okay. Um, all right. So, I was homeschooled, uh, started in about the second grade, and uh, they did something weird with our school system down in Little Rock, which wasn't the best to begin with, um, where I changed elementary schools and was going to a really bad school, and so mom decided to pull me out and homeschool me. Uh, and so, I was homeschooled from the second grade up to about the eighth grade, and um, I went back to regular school when I was 12 years old at Central Arkansas Christian. A lot of you guys are familiar with CAC. 
Uh, I went to CAC, um, and remember now, I'm already a kid that just thinks I'm a piece of trash, and I've never told anybody about this. Um, I'm a kid who had started having sexual fantasy when I wasn't being abused at the age of four, and that's not normal. Um, and so I had like this secret life. I discovered masturbation when I was nine or ten. Um, and, and I had this, just, I felt like two people almost. Like, here's the, here's the good boy that I'm going to present to everybody, but here's this secret guy that I am uh, that I'm going to hide that I can't let anybody see because if I let anybody see how disgusting and dirty I really am, uh, nobody will love me. And so I learned to hide as a little kid and not show this other guy to people. And so here, I've, I've got all this stuff internally going on with me. As a 12-year-old, I go to regular school, and um, what happened that got me attention for my entire class is uh, mom accidentally put her chick jeans in my closet. You guys know chick jeans? Okay, Mark, chick jeans. Um, it says chick real big across the rear end. Uh, yeah, well, she accidentally put those in my closet, and we had our first game day in junior high. Um, where I was going to get to wear my football jersey and wear it to school, and you know I'm a big tough football player. It's going to be awesome. We got our first game, and so I uh, put on what I think are my jeans for school. It's my mom's jeans, and I tuck in my shirt, put on my football jersey, and it says "chick across the rear end." Uh, and nobody tells me at school; they're just telling me how much they like my jeans all day. At the end of the day, uh, then I figure out, oh, when I take my pants off and put my football clothes on, I'm like, what is this? And everybody says, you make me feel like a natural woman in the locker room. <laughs> it was terrible. Um, and so now I have this kid that already thinks I'm a piece of garbage, and suddenly I'm thrust into this uh, situation where I'm surrounded by people my own age who are now telling me I'm chick boy, and I'm, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, and all this other stuff. Well, I already think something's wrong with me. And so uh, it was just a horrible, horrible experience. And I, oh, I got made fun of my whole eighth grade year. Because that happened like the second week of school. I got made fun of incessantly, every day, relentlessly, the whole eighth grade. And I thought very seriously about bringing a gun to school a couple times and, and shooting the people that uh, were making fun of me. That's how serious and angry that I was. I was already an angry little kid. And to, for something like that to happen, it just exacerbated all this stuff that was internally going on with me. And so I just snapped eventually. Um, and uh, I was like, okay, all this stuff, remember now, I grew up in one church. I knew the Ten Commandments. I knew the Bible. I knew the teachings of Jesus. My parents raised me in a good home. They taught me about Jesus. They taught me about God. They didn't know all this other stuff that had happened to me. And I wasn't about to tell anybody about it because that was my secret. And that would me being exposed. <clears throat> and so I wasn't going to do that. Um, I decided, though, after that experience at CAC, that all this stuff that my parents had taught me wasn't working in the real world. And that I needed to let this other guy that I've been keeping hidden out of the cage. Not all the dirty stuff that had happened to me, but just the stuff I felt, like the anger and the hatred and the rage and the you know, I'll kill you if you just get that mentality. And that's what I did when I was that age. Guys, that's when I started using drugs. I didn't become an addict because I wanted to do drugs so much as I just wanted to stop feeling. And uh, I started self-medicating with drugs when I was 14 or 15. 
Um, I was, became known as a pretty violent dude. Uh, if you mess with me, I did a growth spurt around that time. I would just beat you down. Uh, and so people eventually quit messing with me. And uh, I kind of had a reputation for that. Um, I eventually was accepted by my peers in high school. But God, I was a totally different person. And any of you that knew me around those years, you know, I, I, have, I was not a good kid uh, in terms of the way I acted and the way I behaved. I eventually got kicked out of CAC. Uh, my parents moved me back up here to Searcy. Um, I graduated high school just hating life. Uh, and I went to college and turned up the drug use. Um, I got into the radio industry because uh, that was an industry that was going to allow me to continue doing kind of whatever I wanted. Um, I just, I had no thought of God. I had no interest in any of this Christian stuff. I hated Christians. I hated church. Uh, I hated being around these hypocrites that claimed to follow Jesus. Uh, it was just all a bunch of garbage as far as I was concerned. Um, it was a fairy tale. And uh, it wasn't until I was 23, and guys, it was just, a, my whole life was a downward spiral um, up until then. Uh, when I was 23, I finally hit rock bottom. And uh, I had lost several jobs. I'd been fired from a radio station in Memphis. I'd been fired from a radio station in Little Rock. Uh, I was uh, working at the Little Rock Dragway calling races. And I would take a couple hundred bucks that I'd uh, gotten that weekend. It was just a Friday and Saturday job. I'd take it. I was literally set aside a $5 bill uh, for food. And I would go down to Wendy's and I would buy a burger off the dollar menu. And that was my meal for the day. And then the rest of that 195 bucks or whatever, I would just blow on uh, marijuana and cocaine. And I, I, I mean, I wasn't even paying rent, like, <laughs> or bills. I just, I literally set $5 aside for food, and then 195 bucks marijuana, cocaine, and cigarettes. And that was how I lived. And um, I was sitting on my couch one day. I'd run out of money, I'd run out of drugs, and uh, I was seriously contemplating killing myself because I just felt like a piece of trash and life was nothing. There was nothing to look forward to. Uh, I had no desire or motivation to get off my couch and go get a job. I, I just, I didn't even live anymore. Uh, I was so tired of this pain and all this darkness that I was carrying around with me. Uh, I just, I wanted to, I wanted to kill myself. And um, something told me, it wasn't a voice from heaven, it wasn't an audible voice, but uh, all I can describe is knowledge of a voice told me, go get the Bible out of your bedroom. And that was weird. Uh, it wasn't high. It's was like, okay. And so I went and got this Bible out of my bedroom that I had stuffed in a box that I had never opened, except for when I ran out of rolling papers and I needed to rip a page out to roll a joint. That was literally all I used this Bible for. And uh, I went and got this Bible, and I went and sat down on my couch, and I plopped the Bible down in front of me. And for the first time ever, I prayed. For the first time ever, really. Um, and here's how the prayer went. I said, God, if you are there, you're real. I don't even know if you're real. 
I'm going to open this Bible and I want you to speak to me. And if you'll speak to me, I'll believe in you, but if you, if this is gobbledygook and it doesn't apply to me, um, I'm just going to kill myself. Because if there's nothing now and there's nothing later, if you're not real and there's, there's nothing more to life than this, then I have no reason to live. And uh, I opened up that Bible to Psalm 73. And if you're at CR tomorrow, I'll tell you more about that. Um, but to make a long story short, that scripture spoke to me more loudly and clearly than anything else in the Bible could have at that point in my life. It described my life. And I've got two degrees in the Bible. I've gone back and learned the original languages. I've read the Bible cover to cover a lot of times. I'm telling you that is the only thing in the Bible that would have spoken to me that loudly and clearly. And that's exactly what I opened up to. And as I was reading that psalm, that same voice, not an audible voice, but knowledge of the voice was repeating to me over and over. As I was reading that through tears, I love you, 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 I love you. And um, that's when I believed in God. And I did not know that a couple of days before that happened to me, my parents had gotten their whole church group together to pray for me. Specifically, that God would do something to make me believe in Him. And then that happened. And uh, before that, I had been completely closed off to anything God had offered me. Um, but then that happened, and I, I was at least open. Um, by the way, I, I tried that again. As I, after I quit blubbering on my couch that day, I was like, I, I wonder if I flip this open again. This must be how this thing works. I, I, haven't, I haven't done this before. I flip it open to see what else he has to say. It says, do not test the Lord your God. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, so I'm not recommending that as an evangelistic technique. Uh, that's not a good way to come to God. I think uh, the Bible is real clear that uh, he would prefer you not have to do that. Uh, you know, blessed are those who don't need to get knocked in the head like what's well. Um, but that's what it took for me. And I didn't change immediately, um, but I was open and got some people put in my life that were able to study the scriptures with me where I was able to take them seriously. And it was uh, a few years after that before I fully gave my life to God. Um, and it's never been the same. But you know what? I wasn't okay when I became a Christian. One of the things uh, that childhood sexual abuse causes, as I mentioned, is that deep sense of shame where you feel like something is inherently wrong with you. And what will kill you is not the abuse and the trauma that happened at the time of the abuse. What will kill you in your life forever is the way you deal with the pain associated with that trauma. Because your default is that first initial shame. Okay, I have to hide. Nobody can know about this that happened to me. Nobody can know how I felt when it happened. Nobody can know, you know, this had to partially be my fault because I enjoyed it. And so that becomes even more nerdy and disgusting. Nobody can know the real me. And so you hide from the world. And then what you also do is you develop a deep-seated contempt for yourself and for other people. For yourself because you're nerdy and gross and disgusting. For other people because other people are dangerous. 
And so instead of going through life like this, with your arms open, what you do is you go through life like this. And you don't let anybody get that close to you. Because then they'll see the real you. And your greatest fear is rejection. You don't want anybody to see the real you. And so what sexual abuse does on a practical level day to day is it kills your ability to have relationships. People who have been sexually abused as children, the worse the severity of the abuse, uh, the, the more pronounced this is. But you can look back at your life and see a trail of broken relationships. And you can look at yourself and say, who am I close to really? Who knows the real me? And you look and you say, nobody. And so you're alone and isolated in the midst of a group of people. And guess what? When you're baptized, that doesn't just go away. What it also causes is, for a lot of people, it needs you to sense of insecurity. Since you feel like something is so wrong with you, you feel like you have to prove yourself to everybody around you. And so what you do is you become either on one side an overachiever, or on the other side you fall into a pit of despair because you buy into the lie that you really are a piece of trash and you you're not worth anything, so you just don't try anything at all. Or you become this person who tries everything and you're going to be the best at everything and you're going to look around and elbow and get in front because you compare yourself to people all the time. And you've got to be out in front and be the best. <coughs> because then you're proving, see, I'm not a piece of trash. Even though you definitely believe you are. That's why you keep trying to prove yourself. That was me. And so I became a Christian. And guess what I immediately started doing? Teaching Bible classes in my campus ministry. And guess what that did? That made me feel like I was somebody. Because I could get up in front of a crowd of people, and I heard the amen. This was not something amen. I would get up in front of a crowd of people uh, and think that I was better than everybody else. I was better than the other guys who couldn't teach as well as I could, who couldn't communicate as well as I could. I was better than the other guys who couldn't go out on campus and study the Bible with people and baptize them like that. And deep down, I didn't believe that. But it made me feel better to try to prove that. Because I wasn't just proving it to everybody else. I was really proving it to myself. Because I still felt like a piece of trash. And so here's the thing, guys. This sexual abuse stuff, if, if it's occurred to you, the drama and the effects of it don't just go away unless you deal with the root cause, which is that sexual trauma that, you, that occurred to you as a little kid. Until you get to the root cause and deal with that stuff, you're going to have what, uh, you just baptize your idols. It's a good way to think of it. And, you know, it's like unrepentant sin, you just carry it around with you. Uh, and so for me, I became a Christian, and the unrepentant sin that I continued to carry around with me was this deep-seated insecurity and this feeling like I had to prove myself, which drove me to do things in the name of Jesus that were really about me and about me looking good and about me proving myself. And, and my motives, even though it looked good, my motives were ungodly. That's why Jesus will say to people in the end, Lord, they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff for you? And Jesus will say, away from you, I never knew you. Your heart was never mine. It was about you. Because that's one way to get there. And that's where I was. I'm nearly 36 years old. I've been in ministry for over a decade. I've worked for churches. I've preached all over the place. 
Guys, I've just now started dealing with this garbage that happened to me when I was a kid because I happen to be in a congregation where people talk about this stuff. You want to know how many churches I've been a part of in my life? I grew up in the church. You want to know how many churches talk about childhood sexual abuse that I was a part of my whole life? One. The one I'm at now. Which is why I'm able to get help. And you want to know what wrecked my life last year? Getting help. Because for 12 weeks I had to sit and look into my deepest, darkest past. My deepest, darkest secret that I've never shared with anybody. And not only that, all the stuff I did as a result of that. And look back and think about all the broken relationships I had over my lifetime. All the friendships I've ruined because of my contempt and shame that I've carried with me and never repented. <laughs> By the way, it's a sin, guys. You are not responsible for what happens to you when you're a victim. You're not responsible for any of that. Guys, you do, you do have a say and you are responsible for how you deal with that pain. And just because you were abused doesn't make it okay for you to stay high the rest of your life. It doesn't make it okay for you to stay drunk the rest of your life. It doesn't make it okay for you to just do whatever you want the rest of your life because something bad happened to you. It's not okay. Even though it feels right. But what God calls all of us to do is to be open and honest with one another. Because if you're carrying around darkness with you so deep that you feel like, I can't show this to anybody because it's so dark and disgusting and gross and nobody will love me if I show them this because nobody else has darkness like this. What's the truth is, guys, is the people around you, a bunch of them are carrying around darkness like this too, but nobody ever shares it because everybody's scared. But what drives out darkness? Light. And you know what light looks like in the church? It looks like us opening up and talking about the darkness. And sharing what happened with us. Whenever you open up that darkness to the light, it, it just it makes it go away. It doesn't mean you're going to be okay. You will never be okay if you grew up being abused like I was. You'll never be okay. But what you can do is you can heal. And there's still going to be a scar. There's still going to be pain. There's still going to be issues. Guys, I struggle with anger. Just out of nowhere sometimes. I'm just, I still want to go get high when I have a bad day. That's never going to go away. But guess what? The Bible says, talking of Jesus, by His wounds we are healed. And guess what else? God can use your wounds to heal other people too. Amen. Yeah. So what I want to encourage you to do is embrace your story. And don't be afraid of the darkness you carry around. Expose it to the light. There are a bunch of you in here this morning that have been abused who have never told anybody about it. And guys... I want to encourage you just to, you may not be ready, that's okay, but be praying about this. Open up about this. Talk to people about this. Guys, it takes courage. If you can do it today, do it. 
Because what I found is that stuff that I was so afraid to share, that I was so afraid to share, that I minimized and said, that's not really that big of a deal. Turned out it really was. And that stuff that I thought wasn't affecting me at all was affecting me every stinking day of my life. And, uh, man, if you'll open up and just share, um, there's, there's more that will need to be done in addition to that. But I'm telling you, that will start the healing process. And that's the first step. And it's going to be a long process. And it's not going to be fun. It'll probably be the hardest thing you've ever done. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Uh, let's see here. Let me do one other thing with you. Um, how long have I gone? Oh, we're about out of time. Uh, let me do this real quick. Uh, open up to 1 Corinthians 13. This is going to blow your mind. Blow my mind. It may not blow your mind. Um, but it probably will. This is not original with me. Uh, I, I went through uh, my counseling process with a lady named Janice Wade. Uh, who is a licensed therapist. Uh, I am not a licensed therapist. Uh, I am a victim, but I am leading, uh, going to be leading our uh, support group for men up in Missouri, uh, victims of childhood sexual abuse starting in the fall. Uh, and so I've been getting trained for that, and um, I'll be doing some more stuff for that. Um, but uh, this is one of the things that we teach to people. Uh, to show them how sexual abuse uh, affects your day-to-day relationships. And like I said, the, the greatest fallout in, in dealing with the abuse is not the abuse itself, it's the way it affects your relationships. And the mind-blowing thing that I took away, and there was a lot, but one of the probably biggest things I took away from uh, this class when I went through it uh, was how, what's the opposite of love? Okay, most of us would say hatred, right? But the truth is the opposite of love on a practical day-to-day level is self-protection. When you're abused and you have this decent, deep sense of shame and you want to hold people at arm's length, um, you're, you're doing what? You're protecting yourself. You don't want to expose yourself. You don't want anybody to see your shame, to see the darkness you carry, right? Um, look at this. Love is patient. 1 Corinthians 13, starting verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. We've all read that, right? Lovely. We love it. It's love, right? What's the opposite of love? How does this show up on day to day love? Look at this. It says love is patient. Well, self-protection is impatient. It's short. It's irritable. It rushes. Love is kind. Self-protection is unkind. It's rude. It's mean. Love is not envy, but self-protection is jealous, envious, discontent, covetous. Love doesn't boast and isn't proud, but well, self-protection, you're dealing with that insecurity, so it brags, it's proud, it's arrogant. Love doesn't dishonor others. Well, self-protection answers harsh words with harsh words. It always has the win, always has to have a comeback. 
It manipulates and tricks. It has the last word. Love isn't self-seeking, but self-protection is. It's self-centered, greedy, seeks attention, and it's controlling. Love isn't easily angered. Well, self-protection makes you short-tempered, hot-headed, blow up. You'll be constantly sarcastic and cynical. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Well, self-protection keeps a list. It keeps score. It holds a grudge. It won't forgive because you're protecting yourself. Love doesn't delight in evil. Well, self-protection laughs at it. It thinks it's funny. It enjoys evil. Love rejoices with the truth. Self-protection lies. Everything's okay. It hides in the dark. It's argumentative and it's not willing to look at the truth. Self-protect. Uh, love protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. Self-protection harms others in the name of protecting self. Self-protection doesn't trust anyone and is skeptical. Self-protection is hopeless and pessimistic. Self-protection is easily discouraged and gives up easily and quits. Love never fails. Self-protection always fails. If you go as someone who has been abused and suffered trauma, if you go look at the characteristics I just laid out of self-protection, and then you think back over your life, what's characterized your life? These characteristics of love or these characteristics of self-protection? Because every time one of these characteristics of self-protection pops up, guess how it makes the people around you feel? Hated. Hate, you're being hateful when you do these things. That's what self-protection does. That's how it makes people feel. That's why your relationships are a failure. So my biggest struggle, and probably the thing that I grieve the most, is then having to think back and look at that 1 Corinthians 13 and think, in my life, have I been a loving man or have I been a man who protects myself? Have I been a man who displays these characteristics of love or have I been a man who displays the opposite? And the truth is, 90% of the time, I'm displaying the opposite. And that's because I was abused as a kid and it carried around this darkness with me. But guys, now that I've been able to share this stuff and expose it to the light for the first time as a man who's been a Christian for a while, I'm starting to repent. And so, last thing I want to share, real quick, the material we use uh, in, in Missouri to help people deal with this stuff is written by a guy named Dan Allender. And it's called Wounded Heart. Help for Victims of Childhood Sexual Abuse. Dan Allender wrote uh, several other books. He's a jacked up, messed up dude. And I have a love-hate relationship with him. Um, because going through that material is the hardest thing emotionally I've ever done. It's done in a support group with a leader. Um, what I wanted to share with you guys today is if, it, if a leader would like to get trained to lead people through that material, uh, I would like to talk with someone about that. Because especially since you guys have a rehab facility attached to the church, just about everybody that's going to come into your rehab program has had some kind of trauma. It may not be sexual abuse, but some kind of trauma in their past that you need resources to help people deal with. Because until an addict can get to the root cause of what is causing them to self-medicate and do all those things, you're probably going to relapse. Um, and this is coming from a guy who knows all about that. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's all I had to share with you this morning. Um, I'm going to pray real quick, and then if there's anybody that wants
Allison talked to me. Do we do an invitation here? What do we do? I'm, I'm lost. Or we can't. We, we don't have to now. I'm not trying to. <laughs> We're not going to do whatever you prefer to do. Okay. Uh, let's take a vote. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm going to hang out down here. If anybody wants to come talk to me, you can. If there's elders of the church that want to come up here. Uh, guys, if you want to come up here and, and get the conversation started. Um, you know, I know when we were at Tulsa, I had several people uh, for the first time uh, come and talk about this happened. I never told you about it. Janice Wade, when she spoke over in the pavilion, she's one of my mentors. Uh, she had tons of people. Some of them, man, there were some ladies in their 70s that came up for the first time. I mean, these, these ladies are in the twilight of life for the first time telling somebody this happened to me when I was a kid. Never told anybody until you got up there and spoke to us, talked about her abuse in Tulsa. Um, guys, it gets better. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, I'll hang out here if anybody wants to. I'll tell you what, Wes, uh, could we do the Lord's Supper and then... Oh, we didn't Supper. And then take a break and, and people can come talk to you. That yeah, that's fine. I'm just working off the, you know, spontaneous. That's so. fine. That's fine. We'll be spontaneous. Whatever will work out for you. Yeah, that's good. Well, I tell you, uh, you want me to introduce the Lord's Supper? Uh, we have someone selected. Go ahead with your prayer. And then, okay. And then we'll do the we'll Lord's Supper. We'll pray the Lord's Supper. And then you'll be available for conversation. Okay, sounds good. All right, let's do that. God, thank you so much uh, for bringing us together this morning. Thank you that uh, the church at Rimmel is a place where we can talk about this stuff. This is a safe place. Um, this is a place where we can be transparent. God, it's scary. Uh, it's hard. Because when you open yourself up, not only is it scary because of the shame, but also there's this expectation that now I have to deal with this stuff. And I've made it this far without and it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking it's easier to continue to hide. But God, the truth is, we will never be what you created us to be and who you created us to be as long as we're hiding in darkness. And Father, your light exposes the darkness. It vanquishes the darkness. It has victory over the darkness. You can't turn on a light in a dark room and the darkness overcome the light. It doesn't work that way. And so, Father, I pray for light to envelop the hearts of the people this morning here. I pray for light to expose and vanquish the darkness. I pray that we allow that to happen. And I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Wes. <clears throat>